Welcome back to another sci-fi episode where, of course, psychology and finances collide. So on June 8th, I presented a class to Redstone Arsenal entitled A Cruel Summer? Lasting Money Habits for Kids, Teens, and Adult Children. And so I had the opportunity to share with Redstone Arsenal what are the developmental stages of children and money, which I have shared on a, a previous podcast, but also how do you work with your young adult children and your adult children when it comes to money? So I wanted to give a little information on the survey results that I had where I asked the audience, what are the barriers to teaching your kids about money? And I found the responses quite interesting, as I do with all my surveys. So the first barrier is lack of interest from the child. And of course, we know normal child development. If the information is coming from the parent, some children are less apt to listen or even show any kind of interest in that topic and may benefit more from learning the material from another trusted adult. So whoever wrote that comment, please don't let that discourage you from teaching your kids about money. If they're not hearing it from you, put them in the hands of someone who is capable, who has that ability, and can talk to your child. And and usually that will be where they get the listening. Now, the next one is not knowing how best to teach them. And so I understand as a parent myself, but also as a licensed professional counselor, is there's really no best way to do anything, especially when it comes to parenting. We tend to fumble through parenting, and when they finally graduate high school or graduate college, we're giving high fives, fist bumps all around, patting ourselves on the back, and maybe even celebrating you and your spouse with a long much-needed vacation, and just really basking in the fruits of your labor. But there was really no one best way that you reared your child. Let's take some pressure off of that barrier, and instead of thinking that I don't know how best to teach them, just start teaching them. And as you fumble along, they will fumble along and eventually get it. It's just like anything in life. The other barrier is spending on the things you need and not what you want. So that is a lifelong lesson that children can use. And obviously, as an adult, we all get our needs and wants all mixed up. So children obviously are going to do the same thing. And we can teach them the difference between needs and wants, but allow them the luxury to purchase those things that they're wanting and not always needing. Uh, And I gave the example of spending your money on candy instead of something that you set a goal for yourself financially. We can allow them to fail. It's good to allow your child to fail in several areas of life so that they can have these natural consequences that teach them better than we could ever teach them. So here's another barrier, teaching them better than how I work 
with money. <laughs> Isn't that the whole premise of parenting? When we when we learn that we're going to be a parent, we start to fantasize and think about, oh, I'm going to give my child everything I didn't have. Or I'm going to teach them what not to do. I'm going to learn from my own mistakes and impart these upon my children. So we absolutely can do that. So that's really not a barrier that could be considered a motivator. You can teach them to do better things with their money. However, what I always tell parents and what I said in the previous podcast with Kids and Money is if you want your children to do a particular thing, you must model that same behavior for your child. So if there's something that you felt convicted, oh, I need to do this better with my money, then start doing it. And then you're modeling for that child how to do better things with your money. No matter how old you are, it's never too late. Another barrier that I am teaching them incorrect information. Hey, we're all capable of giving incorrect information. It's going to happen. But if you are genuinely interested in their financial health, you're probably going to get most things on the money pun intended, but I would encourage you, don't think too much about how you're going to fumble, but how you're going to help them stumble across something that is wonderful and good for them when it comes to money. So here's the last one, that we didn't really do enough talking about money when our kids were younger, and now it's too late. And the other half of that is not properly teaching them the value of money when they were younger. But like I said in the previous barrier, it is never too late. So just because you didn't start them on that track when they were younger, and I use this same example when it comes to teaching our kids digital health and safety. There might be some kids who have consumed digital devices since they were two years old up until they were 13, never really had any limitations or anything like that. And yeah, it's going to be hard for their brain to adjust to all of a sudden now having limits and and some boundaries around those devices, but it is never too late. You might get a lot of pushback and you might get some kicking and screaming, but it is never too late. Even if your child is full grown, just saying no when they're asking for a mortgage payment or a car payment can teach them the value of money. I don't know what else to say about those barriers, but it is never too late. So with that class, I had a very good question at the end, and I thought I did a good job answering it based on what I thought he was asking at the time. But I really like to learn from my audience. So after I gave the answer and after the class was over, instructors were known for self-critical behavior and and just later thinking about what could have I, I have done differently, how could I have made this more interesting or how could have I, how could I have answered that question? more fully. And so with this question, it bothered me that I didn't provide more information because I think the reason why is that would be a whole other class to give the depth and breadth answer that that question deserved. So here's the question, and I'm going to spend the rest of the time on this podcast answering this question. 
he asked the question, hey, Olivia, I understand that it's, you know, you're talking about um, helping kids find uh, chores to do around the house, maybe get a summer job. But what is the psychological impact of just allowing kids to be kids and not really pushing them to get a summer job? And so my answer revolved more around assessing the readiness of that one particular child to move into the world of work. And then we talked about it doesn't have to be a brick and mortar or a W-2 job. It could just be something around the house. It could be something in the neighborhood. But I started thinking about the better question is if I were to flip this question, what are the psychological benefits of working and what might my child miss out on psychologically if they didn't have a job or if they weren't assigned chores. I started thinking about this because at some point, our kids, whether they're paid in the house or not for doing chores, and we did have another question about that. Hey, do you pay your child for every chore that they do? And no, we don't. And the reason for that is you want your child to take some level of pride in doing things in life that offer intrinsic rewards and not just extrinsic rewards. An extrinsic reward example is money earned. An intrinsic reward example is just feeling the accomplishment of completing a job, of a job well done. I can pat myself on the back. That's my reward. I'm not going to get paid for it, but hey, it feels good to have done that. Um, So I, I dug a little deeper and I started picking my brain a little bit more. And so here are the things that I thought of later to, to better answer this question. Having a job, whether it's chores in the neighborhood or helping out with the HOA, or I hired a young lady at my church, newer to driving, but uh, according to her parents, very reliable. I needed someone to drive my child to vacation Bible school during the day because I wouldn't be able to go back and forth. You guys are going to, you might squawk at this, whether you might think it's too much or too little, I don't know. But I offered her because she is, this young lady is also working vacation Bible school, and she's doing this for free out of the goodness of her own heart. She's 16 years old. Um, And so there was already stress in her life for that week. And so I wanted to take that into account. So I'm paying her $25 a day. And the reason I'm paying that level is because it would cost me more to take time off from work to go take her and then later come back, pick her up, that type of thing. So I took all of that into account to give her $25 a day. So it's pretty cool, you know, a a 16-year-old earning $125 just for picking up and dropping off a kid, but there's more to it than that. But it's a form of exposure therapy. So for example, what this 16-year-old child is learning through this particular job, she's already stressed about what she has to do when she gets there. She has to get there a little earlier, and she's going to have to stay there a little later. 
And then she has to, she had to learn how to prioritize by just picking up Bailey and dropping her off. Uh, Some distress tolerance involved there. What if she's running late on either end? So there are a lot of psychological benefits there as well. Some of the other things, and not just the 16-year-olds working as an Uber for me, but other things that your child will learn, even if they're not 16 years old yet, maybe they're 14 working at Publix or they're 17 years old working at a restaurant, you get to learn how to handle awkward conversations and personality conflicts. You you have this sense of earned income. This is not mom or dad's money. This is my money. So a lot of people would argue, and I'm about to point your attention to an article that I, I found uh, to help bolster this conversation. A lot of these things can be learned without a job. Yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. However, if you see that your child is struggling in one area, maybe social skills, by urging them and pushing them in the right direction of working or finding a job that is not too stressful for them, but would help engage them and help them get out of their shell and learn more social skills. It's called forced social skills training. That could be very helpful for somebody. So not only all of those wonderful skills that you would gain, uh, distress, distress tolerance, learning how to work with different personalities, but you also have to consider the resume factor, career building. Uh, you're building also, you're allowing these kids to build their entrepreneurial prowess as well. And by the way, it also becomes a mode of digital detox. If they're working, they can't be on their digital device. And that is good for their brain. That is healthy for that brain. But we also have to take in all the factors of how many hours are worked. Is it distracting them from being like this father asked? Is it distracting them or is it disallowing them from being a kid or being a teen? And so I think the question that we're asking here you know, what? what is the psychological impact of allowing kids to be kids? Or what are the wonderful psychological benefits of working? We can ask the same question of what are the wonderful benefits of allowing your k- kids to play sports? And what I would say is my husband and I had this conversation before our child um, started playing volleyball. And we had all these realistic expectations about what would occur based on our own knowledge and our own histories with our world of athletics. Boy, were we wrong. Athletics have changed so much since I was an athlete in middle school. I was actually an athlete in end of elementary. I ran track and then into Middle school, I played basketball and continued to run track. And I remember having so much fun. All the games were during school hours. We enjoyed uh, the time with our coaches. I still remember my coach, a male coach. He allowed us to sing um, the Little Mermaid songs uh, that... That movie came out when I was in middle school. (laughs) It was just so much fun. Um, Lots of life lessons learned that, that I remember. But that was not the case for 
my child. If anything, it stressed her out to the max. And she has recently made the decision to let volleyball go. And it was such a hard decision for her, but we fully support her. And this is exactly what this article is about that I'm about to mention because I wanted to provide some science behind what I'm talking about. The National Institute of Health published through the National Library of Medicine published this professor's article on the benefits and risks of adolescent employment. And in a nutshell, this whole article, it comes down to that particular child and the characteristics of that child and also the level of support and modeling that they're gaining in their familial system. So just absolutely interesting. So let's just dive in. So um, the professor is Jalen Mortimer. And so I want to give him some street cred for writing this article, again, on the benefits and risks of adolescent employment. So we all talk about, and it's, a, it's been a question on parents' hearts over the ages, so is it okay for adolescents to gain employment? Is it, is it good for them? Is it bad for them? So they're, they're talking about how complex the answers are. It's really not a simple yes or no. There's a lot involved in that. So he talks about the four basic answers to that one question of is working good for teenagers. The first one, use themselves, think that employment helps them to develop a wide range of beneficial attributes. And we'll find in many cases that is true. In some cases, it is not. The second answer is negative, emphasizing that work carries with it many risks. And then he notes that a third answer to this question makes very little difference, and I'm going to quote him, with respect to healthy development. What pass for benefits as well as costs of employment are attributable to self-selection, end quote. And then he talks about the fourth answer, which is more complex and perplexing in that employment in and of itself is going to have different consequences based on the type of child that is working and the circumstances under which the work occurs. So this was a longitudinal study. And in the world of psychology, you have to understand that that studies many times are become published years and years after the initial study, and that's normal. So please don't let these dates throw you off. The information gleaned from this study is still relevant today. So this was a longitudinal study based on teenagers, generally from the age of 14 to 15 year old in St. Paul, Minnesota public schools, and they started following them. They started this longitudinal study in the fall of 1987. Now, granted, of course, there are some extraneous variables that we cannot control for because teenagers in that day, they had different psycho stressors and other stressors in their lives that are different than what we're facing today. So for example, in 1987, we didn't have the digital age 
Uh, We didn't have phones in our faces constantly or digital devices in our faces constantly. So those are what we call extraneous variables um, that we would not be able to account for today that could potentially impact the study. But after reading this, I really don't think that matters anyway based on what they were honing in on and what they were studying. So what they did is they started looking at the uh, different categories of workers, what they call the patterns of work experience through time. And so they place them in three different categories. You have the most invested workers are those who have worked, they say during this period, they work on average more than 20 hours per week. So these are the kids that are working the most hours. Those are the most invested workers. Then they have what they call sporadic workers, where they put in a lot of hours and many times over 20 hours, but they are only working about half the months of when they were observed. And then you have the steady workers who are working more moderate hours and working less than 20 hours per week. So that's how they've categorized that. And and here's and, and parents, the reason I'm bringing this to your attention is because just like those barriers that I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, we beat ourselves up wondering if we provided the best information to our children and set them up for the best success. So so as this father was grappling with the question, do I push them to get a summer job or do I just allow them to be a child? And and here here's the big answer. The big answer is according to this study that there are positives and negatives to either or. And here's how they broke it down. The occasional workers came from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. They were more intrinsically motivated. And we could argue because they had higher socioeconomic backgrounds, maybe they weren't as worried about having to pay a large amount for college as other lower socioeconomic status children like myself when I was growing up. I had no idea where my college money was going to come from. So maybe they're, they're going into this world of work already with less stress, but they, they do enjoy school uh, and they're learning things at school that they have self-reported are important to them and will impact them positively later in life. They're not the ones in algebra asking, how am I going to use this later in life? They're the ones in algebra paying attention and just enjoying the process and knowing that it's going to lead to a higher goal of using that information to take the college classes they need to obtain the career they want. This occasional worker category, they had a higher educational aspiration and they were more in tune with their future selves. So they limited their hours of work, which allowed them to still be a kid, to still be a teenager, to go hang out with friends, to still have the ability to play the sports they wanted to play, which in the 80s, a lot different than what they are now, Sports today require you to be in club and you're in that sport year round, which I think is is robbing our kids in and of itself of of having <laughs> a life. Uh, one of the reasons my dear child uh, gracefully bowed out of volleyball. 
So then they talk about the most invested workers. These are the ones working 20 or more hours a week. And they were, as the author states, and I'll quote, they were distinctive in their interest in gaining work experience, end quote. So whereas the occasional workers who were higher socioeconomic status, they their whole goal for working was to save money for college. But these most invested workers, by contrast, their interest was simply in gaining work experiences. And they did say their parents tended to be less well-educated. I came from that family myself. And the youth themselves had lower educational aspirations and were less engaged in school. And that was half of me. And I fell into this category of being an invested worker, thinking that I needed to go ahead and set up my career as starting from the very bottom and moving from the top, should I not be given the opportunity to go to college? So then now they have sporadic worker category. They were the most invested in working than others, but they had the most problematic behavior. And again, these were the ones who would work several hours, but they would only work maybe half the time that they were observed. So maybe seasonal work and that type of thing. So here's what they're breaking down a little bit more. They talk about the steady and occasional workers, and I'm going to quote the author here. They pursued a line of action that reflected their strong academic motivations. They were building human capital, mainly through their high level of engagement in school. For them, work was a sideline or even an activity that supported their educational goals through saving for college. The most invested workers, in contrast, were seemingly more reliant on their work experiences than their school experiences to build their human capital, which makes sense when I look back, because I would have been categorized as more of a most invested worker. And again, I was more reliant on what I was gaining from my work experiences rather than thinking about school. And nothing wrong with that. And so the author talks a little bit more about the occasional uh, workers, of course, higher socioeconomic status, more educationally motivated. They obviously were more likely to attend a four-year college and earn their degrees, whereas the most invested workers were more likely to attend a community college, which was me. I started with a community college or a vocational school. Now, folks in the community college and vocational settings, they moved more rapidly towards their career jobs. And then they note that the sporadic high school workers just fell through the cracks and they were more idle. They they were neither employed nor in school. So kind of sad there. So here's here's a quote. I, I, I like to many times quote these authors because they they say it more eloquently than I ever could. So this author talks about the quality of work. So quote, stressors at work led to diminished self-esteem and self-efficacy and appear to foster a depressed mood. Interestingly, however, these negative consequences are short-lived. 
work stressors during adolescence may actually increase resilience. That is, those who experienced stressors in their jobs during high school were less likely to exhibit declines in self-concept and mental health in response to similar work stressors confronted four years after high school, end quote. Ah, I could not have said it better myself. So yes, parents, we are going to watch our babies, our children struggle in work, in high school. They're going to come home. They're going to talk about an angry boss or an angry coworker, or, you know, the language they use. Uh, and we're going to be there to support them because now we know and we've been shown through this medical paper, this research, this longitudinal study, that these negative consequences are short-lived. We always hear how resilient children are. Let's allow that to happen. So he closes out this study or this research paper finding evidence that absolutely work experience promotes healthy development of some young people, especially when it's moderate. So they're not working over 20 hours a week. They're not working sporadically. It's more steady. And so they talk about further how high school jobs are also beneficial for those that are less interested in college. And that's a no-brainer, right? And we're going to have several folks who will never go to college, and they will do well. And you'll find in a next episode, I'll be talking about a book written by a certified financial planner that even if your child only brings in 12 thousand dollars a year for the rest of their lives they can still do very well with their money and if your child only brings in thirty six thousand dollars a year for the rest of their lives of course knowing that you'll have some level of increase throughout the years they still can do well so i want to quote this one too Youth who already exhibit problem behavior gravitate toward more intensive work. Employment, as well as problem behavior like early sexuality and the use of alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, may be seen as claims to adult status or indicators of pseudo-maturity. End quote. I love that because our kids want to grow up too fast. And so sometimes we have to pull them back down and ground them and remind them it's okay to still be a kid. Especially if work is crowding out other activities that are already helping with their healthy development. And and the author talks about sports and extracurricular activities, even relationships, you know, like friends, family, then maybe we need to pull down on that dial a little bit. So to end this podcast, 
I'll talk about the very last paragraph of this author. He's talking about the limited job market for teenage workers. So if, if your child is having a hard time finding meaningful or gainful employment, there's also job shadowing. There are also work-study experiences. And we also have to remember that teenagers can't be expected to make their occupational choices during high school. And I know that we want them to, and and we want them to get prepared for what their careers are going to be. But if they change their minds in college, it's because their brains are developing further, their their prefrontal lobes, their um, career decision-making of their brain, their impulse control region. It's okay for that to happen. They're learning more of themselves. And here's the quote I'll end with. The author states, teens may begin to think about what kinds of rewards at work are most important to them, be they intrinsic or extrinsic, or some combination of both. It is during high school and the years immediately following that these values crystallize. Much school and major shopping, as well as occupational floundering, could possibly be avoided if young people's work values were sufficiently formed to provide a basis for effective educational and career decision-making, end quote. The reason I love that is because that sounds so familiar with what I have provided you in previous episodes on the Sci-Fi Podcast. If we clearly define our financial values, it keeps us from financial floundering. It's the same with the world of work. If we can clearly define our work values, then it keeps us from that occupational floundering, which is what interrupts our paychecks, and which is why a lot of kids are asking their parents for rent money and and those types of things. So the best thing that parents can do, even if you don't even know how to do it the best way, is to at least talk about the world of work, career decision-making, What are your work values? And remember, that starts to crystallize more throughout the end of high school into young adulthood. So they're not going to know everything. And they may even give you a blank stare. Mom, what do you mean work values? Well, then you can ask the question, are you wanting to work alone behind the scenes? Is that more comfortable for you? Or are you wanting to be on the front of the stage? Are you, are you wanting to work with a lot of people or little people? Uh, are you looking more towards repetitive tasks? Or do you want something assigned to you that is new every day so that you don't get bored? Those are parts of work values. So those are the types of conversations you can have with your kids. So parents, I hope you are left today feeling empowered with new information and a little more comfortable about how your kids and you are making decisions with teenagers working. See you again soon.